Wrapping up this edition of Sports Medicine Weekly on this Saturday morning, nice long segment here of Ask the Doctor. I'm Steve Casha with Dr. Brian Cole. Got some good questions for you, Doc. And again, if you want to be involved, folks, in our Ask the Doctor segment, you can go to the homepage of our website, sportsmedicineweekly.com. We give listeners the opportunity to have Dr. Cole address their specific sports injury issues. I've got one right here, Dr. Cole. Uh, from a uh, young person named Ian asking this, is it better for your body to run in the morning or at night? Do you have a theory on that? So, Steve, it's a great question. Better to run in the morning or the night? I think, honestly, it depends. If you look at the science, one of the issues of running in the morning is that you're, you know, you've just slept six to seven hours, your body temperature is down a bit, so it takes a bit longer to get going and sort of rev up, get loose, and so forth. So you're per- what we call perceived exertion. You feel more stressed. You feel like the run, all things being equal, is much more difficult in the morning than if you've done it after you warmed up. So that's one of the challenges. The flip side is if you run in the morning is that it kind of basically just kickstarts your day. I don't know if you do that in the morning ever, but... I can't. You know, your body's natural endorphins get going and so forth, so your energy generally tends to be higher after you've had some high-level exertional exercise in the morning. So that's one advantage of running in the morning, but it does often require a prolonged warm-up period, and you just... You know, you, if you're not a huge runner and you're just trying to get in, you're going to like it a lot less in the morning than when you've been up for several hours. See, I'd rather work out late afternoon and night. You're one of those guys that can roll out of bed and do a lot of your workouts are first thing, right? Well, basically because well, you I want to it, get it in. Yeah, I do it because it's a practical issue because if I wait and I try to say, well, I'll just do it when I get home, you know, umpteen things happen during the day. The one thing I know for sure is when I got out of bed, if I got up early enough, there's nothing else in my way except my exercise. You know what I mean? No one's going to take that away from me. But if I... You know, if I put it off, the chance of me doing it at night, or I get home, I want to see the kids, whatever. It's just, it's harder. I did, it's very unpredictable at that juncture. Do you eat before you work out in the no, morning? No, I generally don't. I you do jump a, out of bed I, and I go to the basement? A, uh, I do, I'll, I'll have a uh, a workout drink that has some caffeine in it. I like that. Caffeine's before you work the, out? That's probably the best, you know, supplement you can take to get things going in moderation. Is, is If you say, what's the number one performing enhancing drug? It's actually caffeine. Wow. I would call is it your, a drug, but, it, you know, it has that effect. What's your favorite morning workout? Um, I, I would, well, because I'm only doing it during the week, twice a week, I'm good. I like whole body, but I'm, I typically do core lower body or core upper body. I split it up. Do you stretch before? Yeah, I always do, so, you know, uh, uh, pre-workout activities that basically, you know, some type of dynamic activity that loosens you up and gets the blood flowing and so forth. And I think that prevents injury, and I think it makes your workouts more uh, productive and and you get easier for recovery as well. Some type of functional movement before you get going. Isn't that the double-edged sword, though, the Catch-22, where you don't ever, don't stretch a cold muscle, but in order to work out, you need to... Well, you know, it's it's dyna- the thing that most trainers will do, for example, is they'll do some type of dynamic workout. You're not just sitting there stretching, you know, the classic hamstring stretch, things like that. You, you, you know, you do some light jogging, back and forth, sudden stop starts, things like that, you know, walking lunges and, you know, rotational things and world's greatest stretch. There's all kinds of things that involve dynamic warm-up where you're not just stretching a muscle in isolation. I think that's probably less common now. How, how uh, have you ever done box jumps? I have, yeah. That's, Are so they good I, on the knees I, or bad well, on the knees? It's not, I don't think it's bad. It's, I don't think, it's not a matter of the knees. It's if you don't do it on some regular, I'll just tell you, as we get older, our our muscles and tendons get less flexible. And box jump is a what we call an eccentric load. You jump down and your muscles have to contract to decelerate what you're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you, let's say you jump off 
if you didn't decelerate, you would collapse, right? In order to decelerate, your muscles have to contract and yep. control your joints so you don't collapse. Right. So as we age, eccentric loads, which means the muscle um, contracts and lengthens at the same time. So figure out, like, if you're lifting up a, a dumbbell and you're letting it go, your arm, you know, extend, right? right. You, at the same time, you're still contracting the muscle. Sure. Eccentric loads are a very common source of injury. So when you do a box jump and your muscles elongate and then try to contract at the same time, that's the very easy way to pull a muscle. So as a guy like me and you who doesn't do it all the time, when you're younger, you can tolerate a whole lot more. So I think box jumps are awesome because it's explosive and you work on what we call frontal chain and posterior chain, the front of your legs and the back of your legs at the same time. It's a really, it's a complex exercise, so it's wonderful. But as an older person, if you don't do it on a regular basis, there, you know, the concern is you you strain a muscle. Have you seen that with NBA players who maybe have suffered uh, ACLs no, because ever. of doing well, lack that's of a box issue. jumps? No, the, no. The other thing about box jumps is that it it activates your glute med, your glute medius, which is probably one of the most important muscles in preventing Where's ACL that? injury. That's in your butt. Okay. It's like you know, it's a small muscle. Gluteum maximus. Yeah. Well, that's your big muscle in your okay. butt. Okay. So the smaller one is the glute medius, and that's the one that controls rotation of your hip, keeps your hip level, and it's one of the most important ones with a jump and land. That's the most important muscle for that purpose. Okay. I mean, all right. And so at my age, would you suggest box jumps? I've never well, done I, them. I, you know, the, I would. I think of eventually, but I would. I'm thinking of a good cardio workout with box jumps. It's very good. It's a complex exercise. It gets lots of muscles at the at the same time. But I would say that you you know you do a low you'd be doing a twelve inch or a six inch you're not going to do an eighteen or a thirty six inch box jump you know right. for starters, and I you know for those types of exercises, form is really important right. you know so I think that people watch someone do oh that looks great I'm gonna do some box jumps or I'm gonna do some clean and jerks or Olympic lifting and things like that that's how guys like you and I get hurt because form is everything. Okay, next question in our Ask the Doctor segment for Dr. Brian Cole. How can I determine if my daughter or female athlete is at risk for a serious knee injury? Can you determine that? Yeah, you can. That's a good question. So, um, well, you could do something like a functional sports assessment, which is a series of five or six activities that look at known risk factors for ACL injury. So there's been really some really good work in the NCAA looking at women athletes and the risk for ACL tears. So, for example, women tend to have very weak glute medius. They tend to, their hips tend to collapse. They tend to run <clears throat> or jump with lower flexion angles of the hip or the knee. They tend to do this with the foot turned out. Uh, they may have very strong quads and weak hamstrings. They, those are things that are at risk for an ACL tear or a serious knee injury, which, you know, those are the same thing. ACL and serious knee injury are the same thing. So there is a test, for example, we do it at Midwest Orthopedics, where people can come in and they can do a functional assessment. We video them at these higher-risk activities to see how they decompensate and see if there's side-to-side differences. So ACL prevention is a big deal, and it's been shown that it can reduce the incidence of ACL tears if you pick up on these risk factors by 30 to 35%. So it's really important. Okay, our next Ask the Doctor Question comes from our own producer, Shane, has a question about NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, you right, Shane? It. Good job, Steve. Thank NSAID. you. NSAID. So uh, tell me if I'm doing this the right way or tell me if I'm doing it the wrong way. Should I be taking, like, if I've, if I've got a softball game or if I've got a dodgeball game, should I be taking preemptive ibuprofen or Advil, like I pop four before the game, or should I be popping four afterward? Should it be preemptive or reactionary? Do you... Uh, Typically get sore after you play? Yes, my throwing shoulder. Yeah. 
Okay, your shoulder. So uh, it's a, also another good question. And um, I would say that a reduced inflammatory response w w is one thing if you take the proper dose of Advil or Aleve, as well as just a pain mediator. So if you're not in pain, um, obviously in pain relief is your number one thing, then I'm not sure taking it before necessarily prevents the onset of pain, but it, I imagine it might. It might heighten the threshold for you to become painful. There's there's something called preemptive analgesia, which we would do in surgery where we'll do blocks and things like that before we actually do the surgery itself, which have some data that shows that the postoperative discomfort is less. So there might be some advantage to doing it. The other thing is it might mute or dull your inflammatory response if you take it before you're highly active, which in, in theory could be a good thing. We're just not used to taking them typically in that way. And, you know, it'd be interesting if you actually experimented. I don't think either way is bad for you, by the way, as long as you take it with food and you have no contraindications to taking them. Um, it might be interesting for you to try, you know. Both ways? Yeah, both ways. I'd be I, really interested to know what you, I haven't studied it, and I can't cite all the literature, and I bet there is literature on that topic. But intuitively, you could argue it could work either way. But when you don't have a painful condition yet, you know, what are you really treating? And then you deal with the half-life of it, which is, you know, four to six hours, for example. Tell me this then. If I know the shoulder issue is rotator cuff related, okay. is the ibuprofen doing anything? Does that the variable arm? add or subtract? Are you saying does it cause harm or does it so, does, does it a Band-Aid or what are you saying? Exactly. So knowing that it's a rotator cuff injury and not just general soreness. No, I think you can do it for anything, quite okay. frankly. All right. I'm, you know, for intermittent use, I'm frankly a big fan as long as you don't have any contraindications and, and you take it with food. It's not, you know, not on a prolonged basis, but for muscle or joint soreness that's inhibiting your ability to do things, I, you know, I think it's okay. You just have to make sure you don't have those medical issues like hypertension or risk risk of stroke or GI disturbance or ulcers and things like that that could be a, put you at risk. So to go one step further, when I'm trying to get my dog to calm down, I'll smush up the Benadryl or the baby aspirin and <laughs> put it in pudding or cheese or something like that. Okay. Will it have a greater effect on me as a human if I put it in smush cheese? it up and, and put it in pudding <laughs> or something like that as opposed to just taking the pill? I think it will taste much better. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Certainly those me medicines, when you crunch them up, they're not meant to be eaten that way, okay? They're not. So I would suggest if you want, because you can't swallow a pill, put in a little chocolate pudding and see how that okay, goes Okay, thank you. you. Appreciate that. No problem. Shane Reardon, our producer. Great it. stuff. And Shane is very handsome this morning, isn't he? He is. His new promotional gear. Yeah, absolutely. It. Absolutely. He's got the khakis on. Do you work at State Farm or something? Khaki in the shirt. Hopefully not. Hey, don't start, the, Steve. The, All flannel, right. the flannel shirt. I love it. <laughs> Last one, Dr. Cole. This is right up your alley. What are the long-term benefits, risks, post-ACL injuries? I would say uh, number one risk is recurrence, which is about five to seven percent. Retear. Yep, retear. Although on our series we're no worse than two or three percent max. Quite frankly, really, frankly, I mean, if I do two hundred ACLs a year, I might see one or one point five retears a year. Wow. It's pretty low, thank God. Uh, that would be one. I would say uh, loss of extension is another one, and that can happen between 5 and 10% of the time. People always ask, why do you have to wait a month or so to get your ACL reconstructed after an injury? Why can't we just do it right away? And that's because the risk of stiffness is much higher if you rush the surgery. So we usually wait until the motion comes back, swelling goes down. So stiffness is probably the, another significant risk factor. Is there a more increased rate for NBA players or professional athletes on the retear? Of an ACL? Um, we've looked at that. I've actually published on that topic. And the answer is um, it, there is a retail rate that's uh, probably higher than the 
regular population, but it's not nearly as high as you would expect. That, that's what I can tell you. And you also found out, and we talked about this a number of times on this show, maybe years ago, though, that um, you're finding that most ACL NBA injuries happen later in the game, yeah. which makes sense, right? Yeah. Or I mean, we that's have a, not... Yeah, that's exactly right. Because, you know, what happens is we test our athletes when they're fresh and not fatigued, and we look for these risk factors, right? Yeah. But the irony is when you look at when these injuries occur, it's usually when they have cumulative minutes, and it's in the third or fourth quarter and when they're long in the minutes. And that probably has a lot to do with fatigue. It absolutely does because all of these mechanisms that prevent the ACL injury, as they start to break down, all it takes is a nanosecond and something happens and the muscles don't contract or you know respond appropriately and boom, all the energy gets transferred to the ACL. Great stuff. And again, if you want to be involved with our Ask the Doctor segment, go to the homepage on our website, sportsmedicineweekly.com. Click on the link underneath our picture and you can ask Dr. Cole a question and we will relay it to him on one of our shows. We're out of time. Thanks, Many thanks to our producer, Shane Reardon. Our coordinating producer is Teresa Ann Seeger. Also want to thank David Cole for managing the website, our business operations, as well as Samantha Smith from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. I'm Steve Cashel for Dr. Brian Cole saying so long. Up next here on 670 The Score, it is Inside the Clubhouse with Bruce Levine and Matt Spiegel. Talk with you again next week, only on 670 The Score.